Book three, chapters sixteen through eighteen of On War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. On War by Karl von Clausewitz, translated by Colonel J. J. Graham. Book three, chapter sixteen. On the suspension of the act in warfare. If one considers war as an act of mutual destruction, we must, of necessity, imagine both parties as making some progress but at the same time as regards the existing moment we must almost as necessarily suppose the one party in a state of expectation and only the other actually advancing for circumstances can never be actually the same on both sides or continue so in time a change must ensue from which it follows that the present moment is more favourable to one side than the other now if we suppose that both commanders have a full knowledge of this circumstance then the one has a motive for action which at the same time is a motive for the other to wait therefore according to this it cannot be for the interest of both at the same time to advance nor can waiting be for the interest of both at the same time this opposition of interest as regards the object is not deduced here from the principle of general polarity and therefore is not in opposition to the argument in the fifth chapter of the second book. It depends on the fact that here in reality the same thing is at once an incentive or motive to both commanders, namely the probability of improving or impairing their position by future action. But even if we suppose the possibility of a perfect equality of circumstances in this respect, or if we take into account that through imperfect knowledge of their mutual position such an equality may appear to the two commanders to subsist still the difference of political objects does away with the possibility of suspension one of the parties must of necessity be assumed politically to be the aggressor because no war could take place from defensive intentions on both sides but the aggressor has the positive object the defender merely a negative one to the first then belongs the positive action for it is only by that means that he can attain the positive object. Therefore, in cases where both parties are in precisely similar circumstances, the aggressor is called upon to act by virtue of his positive object. Therefore, from this point of view, a suspension in the act of warfare, strictly speaking, is in contradiction with the nature of the thing, because two armies, being two incompatible elements, should destroy one another unremittingly, just as fire and water can never put themselves in equilibrium but act and react one upon another until one quite disappears what would be said of two wrestlers who remained clasped round each other for hours without making a movement action in war therefore like that of a clock which is wound up should go on running down in regular motion but wild as is the nature of war it still wears the chains of human weakness and the contradiction we see here viz that man seeks and creates dangers which he fears at the same time will astonish no one if we cast a glance at military history in general we find so much the opposite of an incessant advance toward the aim that standing still and doing nothing is quite plainly the normal condition of an army in the midst of war acting the exception this must almost raise a doubt as to the correctness of our conception but if military history leads to this conclusion when viewed in the mass the latest series of campaigns redeems our position 
the war of the french revolution shows too plainly its reality and only proves too clearly its necessity in these operations and especially in the campaigns of bonaparte the conduct of the war attained to that unlimited degree of energy which we have presented as the natural law of the element this degree is therefore possible and if it is possible then it is necessary how could any one in fact justify in the eyes of reason the expenditure of forces in war if acting was not the object the baker only heats his oven if he has bread to put in it the horse is only yoked to the carriage if we mean to drive why then make the enormous effort of a war if we look for nothing else by it but like efforts on the part of the enemy so much in justification of the general principle now as to its modifications as far as they lie in the nature of the thing and are independent of special cases there are three causes to be noticed here which appear as innate counterpoises and prevent the over rapid or uncontrollable movement of the wheelwork the first which produces a constant tendency to delay and is thereby a retarding principle is the natural timidity and want of resolution in the human mind a kind of inertia in the moral world but which is produced not by attractive but by repellent forces that is to say by dread of danger and responsibility in the burning element of war ordinary natures appear to become heavier the impulsion given must therefore be stronger and more frequently repeated if the motion is to be a continuous one the mere idea of the object for which arms have been taken up is seldom sufficient to overcome this resistant force and if a warlike enterprising spirit is not at the head who feels himself in war in his natural element as much as a fish in the ocean or if there is not the pressure from above of some great responsibility then standing still will be the order of the day and progress will be the exception the second cause is the imperfection of human perception and judgment which is greater in war than anywhere because a person hardly knows exactly his own position from one moment to another and can only conjecture on slight grounds that of the enemy which is purposely concealed this often gives rise to the case of both parties looking upon one and the same object as advantageous for them while in reality the interest of one must preponderate thus then each may think he acts wisely by waiting another moment as we have already said in the fifth chapter of the second book the third cause which catches hold like a ratchet wheel in machinery from time to time producing a complete standstill is the greatest strength of the defensive form a may feel too weak to attack b from which it does not follow that b is strong enough for an attack on a the addition of strength which the defensive gives is not merely lost by assuming the offensive but also passes to the enemy just as figuratively expressed the difference of a plus b and a minus b is equal to two b therefore it may so happen that both parties at one and the same time not only feel themselves too weak to attack but also are so in reality thus even in the midst of the act of war itself anxious sagacity and the apprehension of too great danger find vantage ground by means of which they can exert their power and tame the elementary impetuosity of war however at the same time these causes without an exaggeration of their effect would hardly explain the long states of inactivity which took place in military operations in former times in wars undertaken about interests of no great importance 
and in which inactivity consumed nine-tenths of the time the troops remained under arms. This feature in these wars is to be traced principally to the influence which the demands of the one party and the condition and feeling of the other exercised over the conduct of the operations, as has already been observed in the chapter on the essence and object of war. These things may obtain such a preponderating influence as to make of war a half-and-half -half affair. A war is often nothing more than an armed neutrality or a menacing attitude to support negotiations or an attempt to gain some small advantage by small exertions and then to wait the tide of circumstances or a disagreeable treaty obligation which is fulfilled in the most niggardly way possible. In all these cases in which the impulse given by interest is slight and the principle of hostility feeble, in which there is no desire to do much and also not much to dread from the enemy, in short, where no powerful motives press and drive, cabinets will not risk much in the game. Hence this tame mode of carrying on war in which the hostile spirit of real war is laid in irons. The more war becomes in this manner devitalized, so much the more its theory becomes destitute of the necessary firm pivots and buttresses for its reasoning. The necessary is constantly diminishing, the accidental constantly increasing. Nevertheless, in this kind of warfare there is also a certain shrewdness. Indeed, its action is perhaps more diversified and more extensive than in the other. Hazard played with Rillo of Gold seems changed into a game of commerce with Groschen, and on this field, where the commander of war spins out the time with a number of small flourishes, with skirmishes at outposts, half in earnest, half in jest, with long dispositions which end in nothing, with positions and marches which afterwards are designated as skilful only because their infinitesimally small causes are lost, and common sense can make nothing of them, here on this very field many theorists find the real art of war at home. In these feints, parades, half and quarter thrusts of former wars, they find the aim of all theory, the supremacy of mind over matter, and modern wars appear to them mere savage fisticuffs, from which nothing is to be learnt, and which must be regarded as mere retrograde steps towards barbarism. This opinion is as frivolous as the objects to which it relates. Where great forces and great passions are wanting, it is certainly easier for a practised dexterity to show its game. But is then the command of great forces not, in itself, a higher exercise of the intelligent faculties? Is then that kind of conventional sword exercise not comprised in, and belonging to, the other mode of conducting war? Does it not bear the same relation to it as the motions upon a ship to the motions of the ship itself? Truly, it can take place only under the tacit condition that the adversary does no better. And can we tell how long he may choose to respect those conditions? Has not then the French Revolution fallen upon us in the midst of the fancied security of our old system of war, and driven us from Chalon to Moscow? And did not Frederick the Great in like manner surprise the Austrians reposing in their ancient habits of war, and make their monarchy tremble? Woe to the cabinet which with a shilly-shally policy and a routine-ridden military system, meets with an adversary who, like the rude element, knows no other law than of his intrinsic force. Every deficiency in energy and exertion is then a weight in the scales in favour of the enemy. It is not so easy, then, 
to change from the fencing posture into that of an athlete, and a slight blow is often sufficient to knock down the whole. The result of all the causes now adduced is that the hostile action of a campaign does not progress by a continuous, but by an intermittent movement, and that, therefore, between the separate bloody acts there is a period of watching, during which both parties fall into the defensive, and also that usually a higher object causes the principle of aggression to predominate on one side, and thus leaves it, in general, in an advancing position, by which then its proceedings become modified in some degree. Chapter 17. On the Character of Modern War The attention which must be paid to the character of war, as it is now made, has a great influence upon all plans, especially on strategic ones. Since all methods formerly usual were upset by Bonaparte's luck and boldness, and first-rate powers almost wiped out at a blow, since the Spaniards, by their stubborn resistance, have shown what the general arming of a nation and insurgent measures on a great scale can effect, in spite of weakness and porousness of individual parts, since Russia, by the campaign of 1812, has taught us, first, that an empire of great dimensions is not to be conquered, which might have been easily known before, Secondly, that the probability of final success does not in all cases diminish in the same measure as battles, capitals, and provinces are lost, which was formerly an incontrovertible principle with all diplomatists, and therefore made them always ready to enter at once into some bad temporary peace, but that a nation is often strongest in the heart of its country, if the enemy's offensive power has exhausted itself, and with what enormous force the defensive then springs over to the offensive, Further, since Prussia, 1813, has shown that sudden efforts may add to an army sixfold by means of the militia, and that this militia is just as fit for service abroad as in its own country, since all these events have shown what an enormous factor the heart and sentiments of a nation may be in the product of its political and military strength, in fine, since governments have found out all these additional aids, it is not to be expected that they will let them lie idle in future wars whether it be that danger threatens their own existence, or that relentless ambition drives them on. That a war which is waged with the whole weight of the national power on each side must be organized differently in principle to those where everything is calculated according to the relations of the standing armies to each other, it is easy to perceive. Standing armies once resembled fleets, the land force, the sea force, in their relations to the remainder of the state, and from that the art of war on shore had in it something of naval tactics, which it is now quite lost. Chapter 18. Tension and Rest. The Dynamic Law of War. We have seen in the sixteenth chapter of this book how, in most campaigns, much more time used to be spent in standing still and in action than in activity. Now, although, as observed in the preceding chapter, we see quite a different character in the present form of war, Still, it is certain that real action will always be interrupted more or less by long pauses, and this leads to the necessity of our examining more closely the nature of these two phases of war. If there is a suspension of action in war, that is, if neither party wills something positive, there is rest, and consequently equilibrium, but certainly an equilibrium in the largest signification, in which not only the moral and physical war forces, but all relations and interests come into calculation. As soon as ever one of the two parties proposes to himself a new positive object, and commences active steps towards it, even if it is only by preparations, and as soon as the adversary opposes this, 
there is a tension of powers. This lasts until the decision takes place, that is, until one party either gives up his object, or the other has conceded it to him. This decision, the foundation of which lies always in the combat, combinations which are made on each side, is followed by a movement in one or other direction. When this movement has exhausted itself, either in the difficulties which had to be mastered, in overcoming its own internal friction, or through new resistant forces prepared by the acts of the enemy, then either a state of rest takes place, or a new tension with a decision, and then a new movement, in most cases in the opposite direction. This speculative distinction between equilibrium tension and motion is more essential for practical action than may at first sight appear. In a state of rest and of equilibrium, a varied kind of activity may prevail on one side that results from opportunity, and does not aim at a great alteration. Such an activity may contain important combats, even pitched battles, but yet it is still of a quite different nature, and on that account generally different in its effects. If a state of tension exists, the effects of the decision are always greater, partly because a greater force of will and a greater pressure of circumstances manifest themselves therein, partly because everything has to be prepared and arranged for a great movement. The decision in such cases resembles the effect of a mine well closed and tamped, whilst an event in itself perhaps just as great, in a state of rest, is more or less like a mass of powder puffed away in the open air. At the same time, as a matter of course, the state of tension must be imagined in different degrees of intensity, and it may therefore approach gradually by many steps towards the state of rest, so that at last there is a very slight difference between them. Now the real use which we derive from these reflections is the conclusion that every measure which is taken during a state of tension is more important and more prolific in results than the same measure could be in a state of equilibrium, and that this importance increases immensely in the highest degrees of tension. The cannonade of Valmy, September 20, 1792, decided more than the Battle of Hochkirk, October 14, 1758. In a tract of country which the enemy abandons to us because he cannot defend it, we can settle ourselves differently from what we should do if the retreat of the enemy was only made with a view to a decision more under favourable circumstances. Again, a strategic attack in course of execution, a faulty position, a single false march, may be decisive in its consequence, whilst in a state of equilibrium, such errors must be of a very glaring kind even to excite the activity of the enemy in a general way. Most bygone wars, as we have already said, consisted, so far as regards the greater part of the time, in this state of equilibrium, or at least in such short tensions with long intervals between them, and weaken their effects, that the events to which they gave rise were seldom great successes, often they were theatrical exhibitions, got up in honour of a royal birthday, Hochkirk, or merely satisfying of the honour of the arms, Kunersdorf, or the personal vanity of the commander, Freiburg. That a commander should thoroughly understand these states, that he should have the tact to act in the spirit of them, we hold to be a great requisite, and we have had experience in the campaign of 1806 how far it is sometimes wanting, in that tremendous tension where everything pressed on toward a supreme decision, and that alone with all its consequences should have occupied the whole soul of the commander, measures were proposed and even partially carried out, such as the reconnaissance toward Franconia, which, at the most, 
might have given a kind of gentle play of oscillation within a state of equilibrium over these blundering schemes and views absorbing the activity of the army the really necessary means which could alone save were lost sight of but this speculative distinction which we have made is also necessary for our further progress in the construction of our theory because all that we have to say on the relation of attack and defence and on the completion of this double-sided act concerns the state of crisis in which the forces are placed during the tension and motion and because all the activity which can take place during the condition of equilibrium can only be regarded and treated as a colliery for that crisis is the real war and this state of equilibrium only its reflection end of book three chapters sixteen through eighteen recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia